Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. Father, bless your word today as we, as we break it open to read it, to study it. Let it change us, mold us, shape us. Father, let this word conform us to the image of Christ, that we would be, that we would truly be a people that are being conformed always to Christ and his image. Father, we give you thanks for this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we've covered the, uh, really, we've covered the first two verses of Titus, and uh, today we're really going to concentrate on verse 3. There is, uh, this is just an introduction, and I know you're like, man, but this is an introduction that is just really theologically rich. And um, there are things here that we just, it would be, we would be remiss if we just passed over them and did not take the time to look in depth at some of these things. And today in verse 3, I want to do that. Um, There is this phrase in verse 3, in due time, in due time. It's a phrase that is used... um, more than just here in Titus, it's used uh, throughout the scripture. We find it in the New Testament. In due time. And like I told the children, it means that God has a time for everything. God has a time for everything. So this, this due time, in due time, he manifested his word through preaching, Paul writes. And this is all linked from the verses previous. So in verse 2, where Paul talks about the hope of eternal life that God promised before time, this is linked here to the word that's made manifest through preaching. The hope of eternal life was promised by God Scripture says, Paul writes, before time began, but it was revealed and made manifest at his own appointed time. So God made the promise before time began, but he knew the time that he would reveal that promise, make known that promise, or make manifest that promise. It would be in his own appointed time. This word here, time, is a a Greek word, kairos. Uh, There's another word translated time in English. It's the Greek word chronos. It's where we get our word chronology. So, you know, as we watch a clock, we've got numbers. We've got a chronology from 1 to 12. And we watch the hands go around and time following 
the chronology there. This word kairos is not like that. Uh, it's not chronology. It's a word that means uh, an appointed time, an appointed season. And so in God's appointed time or season, he would cause his word to be made manifest through preaching. This is tied to this concept of eternal life. So when we talk about time, this appointed time, this appointed moment, Paul is clearly confirming the sovereignty of God concerning the appointed times and seasons of all things. The Feast of Israel had an appointed time that they were to be observed each year. And God ordered time, and it is God who orders everything in his time. God does not exist in time the way we do. God exists outside of time. It's a hard concept for us to understand because everything we do, and really, um, really everything we do and all of our day and, and everything uh, when we think about our life, from uh, what I'm going to do at lunch to what I'm going to do when I retire one day to what I'm going to do when, um, when I get too old to do anything. <laughs> time, we're tied to time. Time, in a sense, rules our life in that way. But God doesn't exist in time, though we do. But God ordered time. He created it. And God orders everything in his time. So the time he created, the chronology that we call 24 hours, or we call uh, seven days that makes a week, or 30 to 31 days that make a month, and 12 months make a year, and you, you, you follow me. That's chronos. That's a chronology. God ordered that time, and God orders everything in his kairos, in his appointed time in his appointed season. How do we get to that Kairos moment? Well, the clock's ticking. I have a Kairos moment, a, an appointed time that God will call me home to heaven. I don't know when that is. I just know God does. I can look at that clock and I can look at a calendar and through chronology, I can guess based on the statistical average of uh, uh, an American male lives and say, well, I can guess. But it's just a guess based on chronology. But God has a Kairos moment that no one knows, only he knows that he has appointed, not just for my life and your life, but for all things. This theme of God's sovereignty over times and seasons is not new. We need look no further than Solomon's writings in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. But let me just read to you Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1 right now. Solomon writes, and the birds sing, to everything there is a season. Now, some of you didn't get that, did you? The birds wrote a song based on... Ecclesiastes chapter 3. The birds in the trees also sing about it, I believe. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. To everything there is a season, 
a time for every purpose under heaven. We really should walk around our world with our eyes open. Yes, discerning the times, discerning the seasons, because God has put these things all around us that inform us of these spiritual truths. You know, sometimes we read the Bible and we want to dig into these deep spiritual truths, but we might do better by just sitting on the porch and watching the birds and the trees and the flowers and the wind blow and the rainfall and feel the change in temperature and say, man, it's only going to be 93 today. It was 103 two weeks ago. Maybe the seasons are changing. Sometimes we get so distracted in life, we don't pay attention to the changing seasons until, you know, Snowmageddon just smacks us right in the face. And it's like, wow, when did winter get here? God doesn't want us to walk around life like that. God wants us to discern the times. He wants us to pay attention to the seasons. In your life, you are in, each and every one of you, I am myself, you are in a season of life. It's God's appointed season. It's not your season. You don't control the seasons of your life any more than you control winter, spring, summer, or fall. You just know they're going to come. And you can be better prepared for them or less prepared for them based on how much responsibility you take in the midst of God's sovereignty. We talked about this in Sunday school. Sovereignty and responsibility are not mutually exclusive things. They are very compatible. Ecclesiastes 3 goes on in more specific examples, but what is communicated here in the opening verse is very clear. To everything, there is a season. There is a time for every purpose under heaven. That does not leave anything out. God has a timing and a season for everything. Every purpose under heaven has a time. And because we typically live in the moment, we don't discern the seasons that are under God's sovereign control. The present season of your life may seem as though it will never end. It's not a matter of simply waiting out the season, but working through it. I'm going to say that again because this is really important. In our human irresponsibility, sometimes we just wait out our seasons. And God never puts us in a season for us to just wait it out. He puts us in a season to work it out because he has a plan and a purpose in everything. And that includes the seasons of your life and the seasons of my life and the seasons of his church and the seasons of a city or a county or a state or a nation or nations. It's not a matter of waiting out the season, but working through it. This is what faith does. It works through the seasons of your life. A farmer is not idle in the winter season. He's preparing for spring. If he's idle and waiting for the season to pass, his necessary work piles up. 
piles up in his idleness. By not doing the necessary work in its proper season in the winter, he hinders his ability to produce the necessary fruit in its proper season, the spring and the summer, or the fall, depending on what fruit and what tree you're dealing with. It is God who determines the time and the seasons for everything and every purpose under heaven. The truth of his sovereignty over all things is revealed throughout Scripture to bring us encouragement and comfort in our impatience. As we idly sit by waiting for the season to pass when we should be working through our seasons. As we trust God, he gives us strength to endure as he undergirds and upholds us by his grace. Paul points out the sovereign timing of the Father in making manifest Christ. In Christ, the hope of eternal life is given to those who are God's elect according to his grace through faith. The promise made before time is now the promise fulfilled in his appointed time in Christ. Paul, in his letters to Titus and to Timothy, confirmed God's sovereignty in the timing of all things concerning his redemptive plan and purpose. You are here today, you are hearing this gospel today because God has a redemptive plan and purpose for your life. I don't know what it is, you don't know what it is, you might have an idea, but no one fully knows what that plan and purpose is, is except God. And God has put you right here in this season of your life at this very moment in time for a reason. He has a purpose for everything under heaven, a time for everything under heaven, including Sunday mornings when you assemble together at Christ Fellowship Church and hear a message on Titus. I don't know what God's working out, but the scripture says God is working in your life. The scripture says God has brought you to the season you're in in your life. And you're not to just sit idly and hope it passes sooner than later. You're to actually work through it. Paul in his letter to Titus and Timothy confirmed this. He confirms God's sovereignty and the timing of all things concerning his redemptive plan and purpose. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, Paul writes, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. There's that phrase. In a kairos moment, the Son gave himself to be testified at the appointed time. For which I was appointed, verse 7, Paul writes, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. You all remember, I hope, the record in the book of Acts when Paul was following his schedule, going to Damascus to arrest and execute Christians. Paul was following his chronology 
But God had a Kairos moment waiting for Paul in the midst of his chronology that Paul knew nothing about until it smacked him right off his donkey and blinded him and spoke to him. That was Paul's Kairos moment when Christ revealed himself to the apostle and called him, ultimately called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Here in these verses, Paul is revealing that there was an appointed time for Christ to give himself a ransom for all, to be testified in the appointed time. He also confirms that he was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher to the Gentiles for this reason. He further instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Paul writes that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He will manifest in his own time. He's talking about the return of the Savior. Just like the Savior was born in the appointed time, the Savior will return in the appointed time. And we all know that the final return of Jesus will happen in the appointed time. We also know that many are anticipating his return. I'm talking about his physical bodily return. Many are anticipating his return any moment and greatly, I might add, promoting books and prophecies focused on that anticipated return. And it can be more distracting than it is helpful to us if we fail to stay focused on God's word instead of the words of these modern prophets. Go back to the old prophets, the prophets of old, the prophets who were inspired by God to write scripture, the scripture you read hopefully every day, and let that word inform you that God has indeed a kairos moment when the sun will return, but he has not informed us. You say, yeah, but pastor, it says that you can know the the season. I absolutely agree with you. But I would, I would uh, submit to you that the seasons we should be most focused on are not the season of the Lord's return, but the season you're living in right now. Amen. The season we find the church in right now. The season we find our state and our nation in right now. The season we find our culture in right now. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he reminds them that, yes, even Christ in his first advent came forth and was born according to God's timing. He was born when the fullness of the time had come. And when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son to redeem those who might receive the adoption as sons. I'm going to trust, I'm going to believe, unless you tell me otherwise... That by coming to this table later this morning, you're coming because you profess Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior. You're bringing your children to this table because you baptized them into Christ and gave them 
the sign of the covenant that marks them as covenant members, and you have committed to God and to this congregation and to the angels that you will raise up those children in the fear and the nurture of the Lord so that if you do your job right, parent, your child will never know a time when they did not trust in Jesus. But they will also not grow up failing to understand the meaning of their baptism because you will teach them. You will disciple them. You will, as a parent, more importantly, as a brother and sister in Christ, you will raise them up as a disciple to believe and to trust in Jesus. God has in due time manifested and made known his word through preaching. Preaching is the proclamation of the gospel that reveals to men the hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. God makes manifest his word through preaching. Now let's consider Titus chapter 1 verse 2. The eternal life mentioned in Titus 1 verse 2 is linked to his word, the mention of his word in Titus chapter 1 verse 3. The eternal life of God promised before time has in God's own appointed time been manifested and revealed in his word through preaching. Preaching is simply proclaiming. Specifically, in the biblical context, preaching is the proclamation of God's word. It is the proclamation of the gospel. Thus, the preaching of the word, the message of the gospel, is necessary, I submit to you, in order for men to have the hope of eternal life. Because God, in his own time, has chosen that the word be manifest through preaching. The word that speaks of, that teaches of, that declares to us the hope of eternal life given to us in Jesus Christ. In fact, it pleased God to use the foolishness of the message preached to bring salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, Paul writes, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. We could spend a whole hour on that statement right there. I suggest you mark it and go back home and ponder that this afternoon. It would be a fun exercise. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. For many, our preaching is foolishness. But you know what? It pleases God. And it pleases God to save men through preaching specifically the preaching of Christ crucified. Philippians 1:18. Paul writes, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. I rejoice when he's preached in truth, and I will rejoice when he's, when he's preached. 
preached in pretense. In every way, Christ is to be preached. The coming of Jesus Christ into human history is the fulfillment of God's promise of eternal life for humanity. It is through preaching that the word is manifest and men are saved. Now, before you get worried, you, you don't have to stand behind this aluminum podium to be preaching. You can preach at your home, at your dining room table. You can preach in the coffee shop over an intimate cup of coffee with a friend as you share Christ with them. Preaching's not, not a talking really loud and forceful, like, you know, we're trying to force every word down your throat. Can be. Some people do that. Remember, preaching is proclaiming. You can proclaim Christ anywhere, in any circumstance. And you should. In everyone you can. But God has also called us he has called pastors. He's called preachers. Now, I'm not a preacher because I'm a pastor. Because you might not be a pastor, but God called you to be a preacher, to proclaim the gospel. So don't think this is the only way we can define preaching. It's not. But also, don't minimize this. Because God has given this gift of preaching to the church to make known his manifold wisdom to powers and to principalities. By proclaiming his word. And we proclaim it, yes, with our words, but we proclaim it in many other ways as well. In word and in deed. Still in our time, God manifests his word through preaching. God's word has been entrusted to his church by Christ himself. He commands his disciples to go in his authority to disciple the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. And in doing that, we have the promise that Christ is with us always. The same word of God committed to the apostle Paul by the commandment is committed to us. We are not called apostles as Paul was, but we have the same word of God, we have the same Holy Spirit, we have the same gospel of Christ and gospel of the kingdom, we are commanded to make it known, we are commanded to preach it, to teach it, and most importantly, to live it. In this way, we make disciples, not just by what we say, but by what we do. This is how we change the world. Or, this is how we change our nation. Or, this is how we change our state and county and city. A lot of people about that today. I mean, there are a lot of people in America all about changing this nation. Changing their state. Changing their, their, their county and their city. It's plastered all over the news. It's broadcast as loud and as frequently as you can imagine. But before we'll ever change the world, a nation, a state, a county, a city, you have to be changed and I have to be changed. 
And we have to change our families. If you want to talk about the building block of society, it is the family. And families are made up of individuals. That means individual change has to occur in those individuals in order for a family to be changed. And if families aren't changed, what hope does our city, county, state, nation, or world have? Well, it doesn't have any. I don't know what I'm doing, but it's banging. It all starts at the foundation. The problems we face at the highest level everybody likes to focus on begin at the foundation. So if you can imagine, fix the steeple of the church for all to see the glory in it, or the glory of it, but don't fix the foundation. And that visible expression of glory will fall as that foundation falters. It all starts at the foundation. It starts with our families. It starts with us individually. It starts with the family of God, which means it starts with every member of the church. The problems we face at the highest level all begin at the foundation. We're a people still running to our high places, believing that if we can put the right people in the right place, in the right high place, our problems will get fixed, but they won't. That won't fix our problem as a nation, and it won't fix our problem as a church, and it won't fix our problems in the family or in our own hearts. We are a people still running to our high places, believing it is there that we will find what we are looking for and what we think we need. It was sin for the Old Testament people of God to go to the high places. It is sin for God's people today to look to the high places for the answer. His church must stop looking to the high places and humble themselves before their high King and Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a high place we need to go to. It's a low place we need to go to. As Adam was the gatekeeper who let the serpent deceive his wife, Christ is the new Adam, the last Adam, who will not allow his bride to be deceived. She is not deceived today, I submit to you. She is simply rebellious. I'm talking about the church. The problem in the church isn't that she's deceived. The problem with the church is that she's rebellious. And the problem with the church, in large part, is that there are pastors who will not call the church rebellious because they don't want to offend the people who bring in the money and pay all the bills. After all, what would we do? What, what would we have if we had a church with no people? When the real question we should be asking is, what do we do with a church who has no Christ, who has no gospel, who has no backbone or courage to stand up and tell the truth to the people who most desperately need to hear it. Now you might say, Pastor Jeff, I'm, I'm right with God. I'm, 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 I'm tracking with you. Good, good. Then go find the people out there who are not right with God. Go find the Christians 
I'll make it easy for you. Don't go to the pagan. Go to the Christian who says they trust Jesus, but are living every other way except the way Jesus would live. Go to the pastors. Go to the leaders who profess to love Jesus and want to disciple and, and, and grow the church for the glory of God, but will not stand up and speak the truth in love for fear that the people cannot endure it. That's who we need to go to. Christ has committed to his church the words of life. We are to preach that word and live out that word in faith. We're to do this so that we are building on a firm foundation of Christ, the solid rock. We see the fruits of building on sand with wood, hay, and stubble. It's all around us. The church is a house teetering on destruction. Because of that, the family is experiencing destruction along with the culture and all that we thought was once secure. And all seems to have become unstable and insecure. Should we fear? There is faith and there is fear. God does not want us to fear. God wants us to act in faith, to live by faith, to walk by faith, not fear. In faith, we trust God to command the times and seasons in which we are all appointed to live. We can say right now, everyone in this room, everyone hearing my voice, whether you're here or whether you're out there somewhere, you have been appointed for this time. This is your time of visitation on this earth. I don't care if you are almost six or if you are almost 96. You're here. This is your appointed time. This is the time God appointed you to live. Perhaps we're all in a season ordained by God to make right what has gone so wrong. Did you hear me, church? Perhaps we are in a season ordained by God to make right what has gone so wrong. We all want God to heal us. I don't know a Christian that doesn't. We just don't want his prescription. God, can't you heal me without the medicine? It tastes horrible. God says, no, can't do it. You want healing? You take the prescription. God has written a prescription for us. It's called the Bible. So you go to the Bible and you'll find the prescription for healing. For healing a body or for healing a nation. Or for healing a church. I want us to go again back to Ecclesiastes. I want to revisit the words of Solomon as I get ready to close. Listen again to the words of the man who is called the wisest on earth. I would say at least until Jesus got here. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. 
A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. Time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. This is our time. This is our time. I want you to get this, church. This is your time. It's a time to plant or a time to pluck up what is planted. I don't know, but God does. It is a time, is it a time to break down or is it a time to build up? Is it a time to cast away stones or a time to gather stones? Is it a time to gain or a time to lose? Is it a time to keep or a time to throw away? These are questions we need to ask ourselves. Is it a time to keep silence or is it a time to speak? Is it a time to love or a time to hate? A time of war or is it a time of peace? Perhaps it's a time for all of these things. Perhaps it's not an either or. Perhaps it's both. And we need to know when the time to pluck up is now, and when the time to plant is now. Love is love. No, God is love. And the God who is love, who wrote all of our days in this book before there was yet one, Psalm 139, in that very same psalm, the psalmist who wrote those words and says, God is always with me. I can't go anywhere apart from God. His thoughts are ever present with me. When I awake, you are with me. You know what he says then? God slay the wicked. Oh, wait a minute. Don't read that last part because that's not consistent with love. Oh, really? Really? God slay the wicked. Shepherd, kill the wolf trying to destroy your sheep. Now, you know the context of this. As a shepherd, what do we do? We destroy false teachings. We destroy the lie. We pray for the false shepherds and the wolves that they would be crucified with Christ and go from being our enemies to being our brothers. This is how we pray to bless our enemies. But we don't pray to bless our enemies so that they'll be better equipped to destroy us. 
better equipped to foist the lie upon us so that it's more believable and we can depart from the truth. That's not the blessing. Jesus wants us to pray for our enemies. The blessing is the blessing of the cross. I'll tell you what, you wolf in sheep's clothing, here's my prayer for you. I'm going to pray that God would bring you to his cross and you would be crucified with him, that it would be no longer you who are living, but Christ would live in you and you would have your eyes open to the lie that you are living and spreading. That's how we deal with our enemies. God knows how to slay our enemies. Perhaps it's time for all of these, just in their appointed order, in this appointed time. This is why it's so important for us to discern the time in which we are appointed to live. Now is our time. Listen, I I do this with every Christian I find because I meet so many Christians. And I mean, sometimes the first thing they ask me, how close do you think we are to the rapture? And what I want to do is I say, stop reading the false prophets, stop reading the headlines, stop reading the prophecy books, and go back to the Bible and begin to read God's word and trust him. He knows when he's going to take us out of here. He knows when he's going to return to this earth. Until then, discern the time. Discern what's happening around us. There is destruction everywhere. And while we have too many Christians idly sitting by waiting for their grand escape, they should be working through this season preparing for the next one so that God would bring healing to to this land, to his people, to the church. We are in a spiritual battle, a spiritual battle. War. We have already won the victory, but the war and the battle still rages. We need to be a people who know how to discern the time. You can't do that apart from submitting to Christ, submitting to His Word, and His Holy Spirit. God will lead you. Wash your mind with His Word. Let Him teach you. Let Him build you up in the most holy faith as you pray, as you read, as you study His Word, as you fellowship in the Holy Spirit. And know that you're here for such a time as this. We don't have to wonder. You are. And the reason I know that is because you're right here, right now. Christ has made a way for us. The battle rages, but the war is won. And every week we come to this table and we proclaim the one who won the war. We proclaim the life that defeated death. We proclaim the very one who delivered us from our nature of sin and death and now calls us his very own. And that Lord who is the Lord of time, has brought you to this time for his plan, for his purpose. For the scripture says that everything has a purpose. And everything has a time. In fact, it says everything under heaven. And that certainly includes you. Amen? Christian, you are welcome to the table. Come. Let's all stand.
In your charge today, I want you to know that you should not wander if you're here for a reason. You are. We know God commands the times and the seasons. You need not wander if you are here for such a time as this. You are. God has appointed you to live in this time, in this season. There is work to do. Let us not be idle. What we do now will make a difference today, tomorrow, and for the generations to come, even until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Believe that, church. That is the truth. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you.